Well, good morning. It's, it's that time of year again, late summer, out of people to stand up here and preach. Um, my name is Todd Daly. Uh, I'm a professor of theology and ethics uh, at Urbana Seminary and occasional preacher at Windsor Road. Um, and we are in a very interesting series entitled One Sermon. And uh, I've been able to be here the last couple of weeks and I've noticed how interesting it is that we have uh, Don Fala starting us off with this wonderful sermon on prayer and this fantastic overview, these beautiful vistas of what prayer can be shared in a very uh, vulnerable and open way. And then last week, we get to listen to Connor talk about control or the illusions of control. Uh, and this week just happens to be on anxiety and prayer, which I think ties these two together without having planned any of this. So um, I'm wondering if God may be up to something. Or maybe not. Um, you know, worst case scenario is you leave this morning thinking, well, two out of three isn't bad. <laughs> um, uh, so l let me pray quickly and then we'll get started. Father, we ask for your truth this morning. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would sanctify us. And Holy Spirit, will you speak to us? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you know that in, in my former life, I, I was uh, an electrical engineer. I'm not sure how all that came about. Um, but there was a time back in my second year of college as an engineer at Iowa State University. Uh, I had uh, never really cared for the topic of physics, and I had been dreading my whole first year the reality of the second year, which was uh, the horrible, greatly feared physics 221-222 sequence. Two five-credit classes, which means that you had physics every single day of school from late August to early May. And if, you know, the, the calculus sequence in your freshman year didn't take you out, physics certainly would. It was well known as the weed out course. And so the, the, the month and a half leading up to that first midterm exam, um, the anxiety just slowly built week by week. And these exams were known for being absolutely brutal. If you got between 40 and 50%, that was considered about a B. That's a pretty good score. Um, if you scored, say, in the 80 percentile or higher, you could expect a call from NASA, right? Um, now, now, to save you the embarrassment, or right, maybe not being able to come up with a, an intelligible answer, and I think just for pragmatic purposes, they made these tests multiple choice. Um, but to make it easier to systematically humiliate you, they give you one of ten different options for each single problem. Um, so, so not only do they give you a lot of options, but they deliberately work the problems incorrectly so that those answers are up there for you to choose. And then to top it off, the last option, option J, was always none of the above. So, so there I was, you know, sitting in a large lecture hall with a ridiculously small surface to write on. I've got my nerdy Texas Instruments calculator fired up and ready to go. 
and the one allowed sheet of paper for formulas, which I had filled with the discovery, well, every formula from, say, um, the discovery of gravity on was on this sheet, written in a 0.3 millimeter lead mechanical pencil, which is, if you push too hard, you'll just rip the paper. And so w when the clock struck 7 p.m., I turned over the cover page, and there all my worst fears were immediately realized. Um, I worked the first problem, and I got none of the above. And I thought, huh, they're trying to fool me. I'm not buying it. It's not, the, you know, it's none of the above. The, the, the problem is, as I kept going, um, the second problem, I got none of the above. <laughs> and then the third problem, none of the above. And, you know, by this point, sheer panic had set in, which, as we all know, is really helpful when you're trying to think clearly and logically. Um, and, and so I furiously started looking for anything that, that looked doable. And, you know, by God's grace, there was a, there was a gimme problem in the middle, right, that I, I found. And, hey, there's the answer. I was reasonably confident, you know, at a 60% confidence level. That was enough. I took the answer, kind of calmed down, um, and managed to, you know, survive or um, give an educated guess for a, a lot of the other problems. And I, I passed. Um, NASA never called me, but I did make it through. Um, and I, only subsequently did I realize that I probably don't do well in exam-type situations, and that, that there, I, may have, um, I may have some issues with, with panic. Um, thankfully, there's nothing wrong in our country or our world or our lives today, right? We live in worrying times, so we're told, and we've become increasingly anxious people. Um, numerous studies have been conducted over the last 80 years that have confirmed um, study after study uh, we have grown increasingly anxious and depressed. Some now call our country the United States of Anxiety. And as a country, it seems that we're increasingly turning to medication to help us cope with our fears. And the pharmaceutical industry is there to help, whether there is a clinical need or not. But before we go any further, I want to say a couple of things to preface everything that's being said from here on. I want to make something very, very clear. Um, for those who might be here this morning who are currently on anti-anxiety medicine, you know, for all the good that can come from prayer as an antidote to anxiety, this is our topic, um, I want to speak against any kind of misconstrued subtext that might be going on this morning. And first, this is not an attempt to make you feel guilty. Or this is not an attempt to make you feel that you're not spiritual enough. Um, or if you've been told, you know, if you'd only read your Bible more, or if you could just learn to trust God, God, then medication wouldn't be necessary. If you have heard those things, um, I'm sorry. I don't know where anxiety crosses the line to pathology. I'm not a doctor. Um, well, as my wife would say, I'm a doctor, but I'm not the kind who help, you know, helps people. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know where uh, anxiety crosses the line into pathology. And I'm not sure anybody does. But given that we live in a fallen world, we should be thankful for good psychiatrists and psychologists and we need Christian practitioners in this field. 
So to say that prayer is an antidote for an anxiety does not mean that it must replace medicine. Though in some cases, prayer might mitigate some of these symptoms, the real danger is in letting medicine or other things replace our need for prayer. So there's no guilt attempted here this morning. We should also acknowledge that some anxiety is just plain normal and even helpful. Anxiety can be a helpful springboard to start something new, to perform well. But I suspect we're probably more familiar with its darker features. We know the effects on the body and soul all too well. Loss of sleep, quickening of the pulse, um, breathing grows shallow, blood vessels constrict, blood pressure increases, you know, greater stress on the heart, tighten muscles, tension headaches, and on and on it goes. The author uh, Franz Kafka in the early 1900s described his own anxiety as the sensation of having a ball of yarn in the middle of his body uh, that quickly winds itself up and all of the threads are pulling in from the surface of his body, growing tighter and tighter. But it does other things too. Anxiety messes with our behavior. Anxiety procrastinates. It stifles. It suffocates. It presses in on us. It disrupts the flow, especially if you're a musician or an athlete. It broods over the unknown. It is fearful of the future. It takes the long way home. It avoids confrontation. It afflicts with its questions of what if and often keeps company with helplessness. Anxiety has the ability to simultaneously energize and exhaust. It is a monster that robs us of the present by feeding on the past and the future, on regret and the unknown. It's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And anxiety can paralyze us. It even works its way into our dreams. I don't know about you, but I have a recurring dream about being unprepared for a final exam. It's tomorrow, and I haven't looked at the book the entire semester. Or maybe you're a project manager, and you need to make a big presentation to the boss in the afternoon, but you have yet to schedule a single meeting with your team. Or you show up at work, or a party, or church, only to realize that you forgot to get dressed. <laughs> Good. Or you're ready to give a sermon at a church for the first time, and as you walk to the pulpit, you realize that the first five pages are missing. That one actually happened. That's a story for another time. Uh, but little wonder, uh, the command to not be afraid is the most common in Scripture. And Paul was dealing with an anxious bunch in Philippi. Like Paul, they were experiencing persecution and had grave concerns about their future. And as he brings this letter to a close, he tells them to not be anxious but to pray. Uh, it's up on the screen behind me. It's also page 982 if you want to look at it in the Pew Bibles. Here's what Paul says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The message is deceptively simple, but not always easy to do. Prayer is God's antidote for anxiety. And in these two little verses, he gives us the when and the how and the why, or the occasion for prayer, the outline, and the outcome. And here we go, point number one. Could it be more basic? We should pray when we're anxious. It's almost embarrassingly simple. He urges the Philippian brothers and sisters not to be anxious. Literally, he says, stop being anxious. In other words, Paul knows that the, that the Philippian believers are already an oppressed and anxious bunch. They are worried. Theirs was a congregation filled with nail biters and foot tappers and the downtrodden, the depressed, and the persecuted. Paul himself was writing from prison, and he knows that they were facing opposition, but encourages them to contend for the faith without fear and reminds them that they have been granted the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. Philippi itself was a thoroughly upscale Roman city, polytheistic in nature, temples to gods everywhere. Uh, it's no different in our culture, by the way. Our sports stadiums are the modern-day temples. Right? But they're popu- this city was populated with retired generals from the Roman army. That's how this city came to be established. Paul and Silas actually established the first church there. If you want to read more about that, Acts chapter 16 chronicles some of the events. But even they were beaten and thrown into prison and charged with the attempt to convert its citizens to a monotheistic god after Paul got irritated and cured the demon-possessed girl um, and deprived their owners of money. It is likely that some of the Philippian believers were in jail too. And on top of that, the church was also being harassed by Judaizers. These were Christians who were trying to add uh, to the list of do's and don'ts to be a Christian disciple. They, specifically, they were enforcing circumcision on other Christians. And then if, if you read through the letter on top of that, there are being ridiculous disputes between at least two prominent members of the church. Uh, in the first couple chapters of verse 4, uh, Euodia and Syntyche are publicly admonished to resolve their dispute. And in addition to all of this, word gets back to the Philippians that their own beloved Epaphroditus, who was sent with a gift to comfort Paul and to get some word of encouragement from Paul, may have fallen ill and may actually be dead. Paul sends, uh, in this letter, he says, he's alive, he made it, I'm sending him back to you. But imagine being a part of this congregation where, you know, the person who planted your church, kind of the founding father, is in prison, and where some of your, uh, your, your best people aren't showing up anymore because they're in prison for doing the right thing. And then where you have those who are, you know, remaining behind are constantly being harassed by a group of super-Christians, Right, the people you actually wish were in prison are actually in the pews, in reminding you that you're not spiritual enough. And then you've got petty disputes over what color to paint the church walls or what version of scripture to use on Sunday mornings or how long sermons should be. This one will be within the limits, I promise, or I, I'm very close. 
Um, and then you lose contact, right, with the missionary team or the person that you send out you know, to help the founder of your church, and all you know they're dead. You know, is there anything else that could possibly go wrong? So Paul's letter arrives at just the right time, and he concludes by telling them, stop worrying, stop being so anxious. And he's probably drawing on the Jesus tradition that would later become the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where Jesus exhorted his listeners not to be anxious about their life or their material concerns or the future. In fact, Paul even uses the same Greek verb there, don't worry, the same word used by Jesus. But he expands it somewhat and says, don't worry about anything. Just stop. Stop worrying. But he doesn't stop there, thankfully, because we all know that when you tell somebody to stop doing something, it usually isn't effective, especially when, we're, when we do it to ourselves, right? It just doesn't seem to work. Stop losing your temper. Stop biting your nails. Stop being such a dork. You ever try to stop a particular behavior by trying to you know, tell yourself, stop it like, with a lot of effort? You force yourself to do it. It's almost as bad as getting like a really irritating song stuck in your head or a commercial jingle, right? You ever have that happen and then you try to get rid of it and you tell yourself, stop humming it. But yet it continues to drone on and on and slowly drive you crazy. What's the best way to get rid of it? You sing a new song. How do we disrupt the rhythm of anxious thoughts that wash over and pollute our soul like waves of the ocean? Paul tells us that we should pray. Prayer is our opportunity to sing a new song. Prayer is God's antidote for anxiety. Anything worrying you this morning? Anything weighing you down, causing anxiety? Odds are there's at least one or two of you here. Maybe you're paralyzed by fear of failure this morning, whether that's relationally or professionally or academically. Maybe you're dealing with an unreasonable boss with crushing demands and deadlines or unmanageable coworkers. Maybe you're burdened this morning over a broken relationship that seems beyond repair or you've run into financial difficulties, or you're wondering how, how is this going to get resolved, or you're just generally anxious about the future. Some of you are anxious about a son or a daughter who has wandered far from God, and you're wondering if they'll ever find their way back. Or maybe the test results from the doctor indicate that they need to take a closer look or you've just been diagnosed with something new. Or maybe you're burdened with lingering chronic health concerns, or you're anxious over the growing racial unrest in our country and disappointed in how this election race has shaped up this far. Or if that isn't enough, maybe your anxiety has no definite object. The technical term here is a German word, it's, it's called angst, angst. 
It is a perpetual low-grade worry that leaves a sense of heaviness in your soul, but you can't seem to identify what it is that is afflicting you. It is a nameless affliction. And if any of those describe you this morning, then Paul is offering prayer as an antidote for anxiety. When we're anxious about anything, he says, we should pray. How do we do that? Well, he gives us a a nice little outline here in a couple of verses. Again, really straightforward. Prayer involves telling God our concerns. There's nothing complex or unusual here. I mean, Don Fallis told us this a couple weeks ago. And that means basically asking for what we need. We are to bring our requests before God. He uses several terms here, but they're all synonyms for prayer, starting with the actual word prayer, and then he moves to the more specific term, uh, supplication, and then even more specifically, to requests. So supplication speaks of the form of prayer, and then he moves to this term request, but he says it's, it's your request. So this is where it really gets specific and detailed, and it's, it's what's afflicting you. This is bringing specific needs before God. There is something a little bit unusual about the wording here, though. He says that we're to let our requests be made, be made known unto God, which is a slightly odd way of putting things, since it might suggest that God needs to be brought up to speed on our situation. I think it's all the more odd, again, that, that Paul is borrowing from a tradition in the words of Jesus, uh, which speaks of God's specific knowledge. These are the words from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious, do not worry. Same phrase that Paul uses, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So what's going on? Well, I don't think we're encouraged to bring our requests before God because God needs to know of what we need. It's probably best interpreted the other way around, and that is this is an example of God's divine condescension to our limited humanity. Of course God knows what we need. Right? But it's one thing to contemplate the reality of God's exhaustive knowledge of our needs and our anxious thoughts. I mean, that's, that's part of systematic theology. Well, that's half of it. Um, but it's another thing to know that God knows these things because we have talked to God about them. One of my favorite theologians had, has made a subtle point here, though, that systematic theology went astray when it became something that you did in your chair instead of something that you do on your knees. Paul is not asking us to engage in some kind of stoic contemplation where we reflect on the reality that God has ordered everything for the best, but is urging us very existentially in the messiness of real life to lay our cares and concerns before God. That is quite literally to tell God what we need, the God who already knows. But by bringing our scares, our scares, yeah, that's a good way to put it, by bringing our cares and specific requests to God, laying our troubles upon him, every possible source of anxiety, we are given through this process a deeper level of assurance that God knows our earnest desires because we have told them to God. 
In fact, that simple phrase rendered in the English as to God at the end of verse 6 in the Greek is meant to get at something a little bit different. It is meant to highlight the fact that God is present, that when we do this, we are in God's presence because prayer is for us. Like the resurrection, right, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out, but that the world might see in. Prayer isn't for God's benefit, it's for ours. The second point, um, under this heading here, for everything, Paul places no limits on what we are to pray for. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. Um, technically, in everything means in everything. In every situation. In other words, this is not the time to hold something back or to remain silent under the assumption that some of our needs are petty or too small for God, are far beyond the purview of his concern and care. We should not assume that God has much bigger and more important things to deal with. If a concern is big enough to bother us, it is big enough to bring before God. Nor should we withhold our concerns and anxieties out of a sense of like embarrassment or pride, thinking, I should be over this by now, God. Or entertain these thoughts that if I reveal my anxieties, I'm only showing how spiritually immature I am. Well, the truth is maybe some of our anxieties are spiritually embarrassing, but Paul says, bring them anyway. Um, My sister told me a story once of uh, the time she went to a Bible study, and it was a a newer study, and they went around the room at the end, and they took prayer requests, and she found it odd and somewhat entertaining and funny that someone, you know, in this series of pretty heavy requests, uh, one man Um, prayed for prayer for his cat because he was going out of town for several days. And we both had kind of a good chuckle over that. We we laughed. Um, thought this was a little bit odd and ridiculous. Um, You know, some of you might think, well, for dogs, okay, right? But I mean, (laughs) but but cats. um, Does God care about cats? Well, that's an interesting theological question. Thankfully, we'll put that aside for now. It's, it's, it's not the relevant question here, even though God knows about every sparrow that falls from the sky. The question is, does God care about the person who's anxious about his cat? See, the expansive grace of God invites us to submit every request and concern before him, from goldfish to genocide. Of course, there's a big moral difference between these two, but prayer is one of primary means of moral formation where over time, our worries and concerns begin to reflect the things that God is concerned about. So if your daughter is worried about the family pet or even a sick goldfish, of course, you should pray. But it's also a good time to pray for Syrian refugee kids who don't know where their next meal is coming from or who fled under bombing and don't know if their parents are alive. 
Finally, this, this last section with thanksgiving. Paul says we need to do this in a spirit of thanksgiving. Now, this does not mean that we presumptively thank God for an answered prayer in advance, as if our confident prayer can make God do what we like. There is no name it and claim it going on here. Praying with thanksgiving merely reminds us that God is in control. I think Gordon Fee has said it best when he noted that thanksgiving in prayer is a fundamental acknowledgement of our creaturely dependence on God for everything. He says it is a verbalization before God of his goodness and his generosity with no conditions attached. We can be thankful that God invites us to bring everything before him with thanksgiving. And finally, just hang in there, we're almost there. Um, The why question, or the outcome of such prayer. What does prayer accomplish? Paul says it brings peace. And he highlights three aspects here. It comes from God, it surpasses our limited understanding, and it guards us. This peace that comes from God comes from the God of peace which is a very unusual term that Paul uses really only once, and it's in verse 9. This perfect, reciprocal, unbroken, eternal fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is peace himself, becomes our peace when we give our anxieties over to him with thanksgiving. One commentator put it this way, and this is probably the best, best sentence I could ever hope to write. God himself is not beset with anxieties. What a, what a great thought to entertain and ruminate on and think about throughout the day. There's no hand-wringing in heaven. God is never caught off guard. This peace is equivalent to this Old Testament shalom that gets at a profound sense of well-being. And we should note that this promised peace does not hinge on praying in alignment with God's will. It is not contingent on following a formula. The mere act of telling God our troubles and what we need with thanksgiving is all that is needed. In fact, for all we know, we could be asking for something that we are not meant to have, but God's peace is promised anyway. God's peace is bigger than our worries and our cares, whether they are misguided or not. And the second point he makes is that this peace transcends all comprehension or understanding. It defies rational explanation. And in reality, if we were to know the reasons why some things were happening, I'm not sure it would help anyway. This again should not be confused with some type of manufactured serenity that comes from meditating on God's uh, working out all things for the best. I know we're getting perilously close to Romans 8, um, but that's for another time too. God's peace far surpasses any comfort that might be derived from a deeper understanding of the mess that's currently afflicting your life. A failure to perceive or discover or engineer any possible way out of your dilemma is no hindrance to God's peace. It is entirely beyond the power of human comprehension.
completely. And finally, Paul tells us that this peace watches over us. It guards our mental and emotional state. He does that by referencing these two words, um, heart and mind, thoughts and desires. There's no promise that everything is going to work out to plan. Um, No promise that everything's going to be resolved in the way we want to see it fixed or that everything will turn out right or that we'll get what we ask for in good time. Does God answer prayer? Absolutely. But not always in the way that we would like. Paul has no interest in such platitudes. His gospel is not one of the Swahili phrase, Hakuna Matata, right, that was hijacked by Disney and crafted into this happy little song in The Lion King. Um, yeah, I know there's some good theological points in that movie, like, you know, remember who you are, etc., etc., but this song is not one of them. I mean, to adopt a no-worries mindset is to embrace a profoundly anti-Christian idea, right? It is to uh, mentally check out from a hurt and broken world. Nor should this be confused with a, you know, this idea of being carefree or cultivating a manufactured sense of calm that allows us to hover over the troubled waters like a seagull, right? This is a piece for when you're in the sea and you're treading water for hours and your throat is dry and your muscles are burning and it feels like the next wave might take you under. Paul tells us that God's given peace will watch over our hearts and minds and it is a way of saying that we are protected from oppressive thoughts and emotions the whole inner life. He deliberately uses this military term of guarding. God's peace will guard us. In its context, this word would be used to refer to a detachment of soldiers who stand armed and ready over a city gate to protect it from attack. And since Philippi was under a constant care of a Roman garrison, this metaphor would have spoken to them very clearly. So when we are beset with anxiety and care and we bring our needs to God, we are promised that Christ stands watch over our hearts and minds and sustains us when we feel as if we are drowning in an ocean of anxiety. God's peace stands guard over our hearts when anxiety wilts our resolve or leaves us paralyzed. It also watches over our minds And interestingly here, that word here really means specific thoughts. Paul is referring to specific thoughts. Like, I don't think I can face the future. Or, this marriage is doomed. Or, I'm in way over my head. Or, God has run out of patience with me. Or, you're such a fraud. Who are you to preach a sermon on anxiety? how easy it is for one anxious thought to shipwreck us. Um, How fragile we are when one thought comes along and we forfeit a sunny day for a month of gloom. How quickly one troubling thought can multiply and bury us under an avalanche of anxiety. 
but when we turn to the God who will not allow bruised reeds to be broken or smoldering wicks to be quenched, Christ stands guard over us and promises this inexplicable peace because we are in Christ. That's what prayer can do. I'm not sure about you, I'm not sure, um, I'm sure about me that existentially that's, a, that's a, not a reality I can say I've incorporated much in my life. What, what does that look like? Um, probably the best explanation I've heard has uh, been relayed in a, in a story written by uh, Brennan Manning, an author, um, a self-described failed Catholic priest and recovering alcoholic. Um, but he recalls the time that a woman knocked on his door at his home in New Orleans. Didn't know her, but she knew about him. And she asked if he could be willing to come and pray with, uh, with her father, who was at home dying of cancer. She said that you know, their own pastor had promised to come for three days, but had yet to show up and was probably wrapped up in some meetings or some administrative details, or maybe had even forgotten. So he said, sure. And when he got to the man's room, he noticed an empty chair beside the bed. And so Manning said, oh, I see you're expecting company. And the man looked at the chair and said, oh, oh, that. Um, close the door. I don't want my daughter to hear. And so he proceeded to tell Manning that the pastor of his church preached a lot of sermons on prayer, but he frankly could never understand them. And one day he finally got the nerve um, after the sermon to come up to the pastor and say, look, I get zero zilch out of your sermons on prayer takes a lot of guts. Um, no pastor ever wants to hear that about anything after a sermon. So, the, but the pastor gave him uh, a book on prayer. So this is the best book on prayer in the 20th century. It was written by a Swiss theologian with the name of von Balthasar. And so he said, you know, I took it home and I started to read it and I had to look up 11 words in the first three pages and that was enough. So the next week I gave it back to the pastor saying thanks. And then as I walked away under my breath, for nothing. But then he said he talked to one of his best friends uh, who told him, well, look, prayer is just basically having a conversation with Jesus. He said, if Christ has promised to be with us until the end of the ages, then he's already there. Just pull up an empty chair, envision Jesus sitting there, and speak and listen to him. And the old man told Manning, I've been doing this for the last four years, sometimes uh, up to two hours a day, and I love it. This guy probably had the gift of prayer. But he said, I need to be careful because my daughter doesn't know, and I don't want her to see me speaking to an empty chair. She might think I'm crazy. And then he asked Manning, do you think, that's, uh, do you think it's okay to keep praying this way? And he said, you know, how could you do anything better? And he anointed him with oil and said a prayer over him and returned to his house. A couple days later, the daughter returns to his uh, door, says that his dad had died, that, or her dad had died that afternoon. Did he die in peace? asked Manning. And she said, oh yes. You know, he called me to his bedside, told me a corny joke, and then told me that he loved me. And then I went to, went to the store to grab a few things, and uh, the hospice nurse was in charge, and when I returned, he was gone. 
But, she went on to say, you know, there's the weirdest thing that happened and I can't figure it out. According, you know, according to the nurse, just before he died, he leaned over and put his head on the empty chair beside the bed. Manning knew what that was all about. Does our view of God, can our view of God accommodate that picture of Jesus? That's the reality of the incarnation. Jesus didn't just come to die on the cross. You know, that's a big focal point. But Christ is ascended to the Father in the flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. To look in the face of Jesus is to look in the face of God. Prayer is God's antidote for anxiety. And the stakes are incredibly high because anxiety so easily undermines us and paralyzes us. Right? But being a follower of Christ, this is part of the deal. Anxiety comes with the territory. It is not about avoiding anxiety at all costs. Prayer is not a stress management program to help us be successful. And if you think about this, uh, we're almost done. Bear with me here. The light, think about the life of Paul, uh, who is encouraging us to pray. I mean, his life would, by all contemporary accounts, be considered a complete disaster. He would flunk out of any life management course. I mean, what, what life management institute would take on Paul as a life coach? Whew, buckle up. I mean, by his own admission, he'd been beaten innumerable times, had gone without food and a place to sleep, had been stoned and shipwrecked, thrown into prison numerous times, five times been uh, lashed by the Jews, 39 lashes, was nearly torn limb from limb in a riot in Ephesus, was constantly in danger from rivers and bandits, in his own words, had to escape the city by nightfall one night by being lowered in a basket, and insisted on going to the heart of the Roman Empire to proclaim Christ. Yet here he is, writing this letter from prison. It's probably the most intimate of all his letters. And his whole letter transcends worry. The book of Philippians is often called the epistle of joy because it is, is dripping with exuberance. This word occurs at least 16 times. He is rejoicing throughout, and he calls on the Philippians to do the same thing. Even amidst all hardship, even amidst all the anxiety that comes from following Christ, amidst the anxiety of yet again being thrown in prison, he is full of irrepressible joy. He is living a life that invites anxiety, but because of Christ, he is not being mastered by it. Paul may have been behind bars, but he was not in bondage. We might, we might want to ask, who is really in prison? Chances are pretty good that we're all in some kind of bondage this morning. We can be in servitude to our own anxieties and fears and live our lives in a carefully constructed, cramped, fragile enclosure of our own making, or we can give these anxieties over to God and start living from a, pa a place of peace, right? A place that defies all understanding. 
maybe, maybe you'll have to answer or ask some difficult questions about your behavior and your lifestyle and, and where you're headed. Um, I turned 50 yesterday. Um, please don't sing happy birthday, I hate that, and I, but th thank you. Um, um, and it's given me time to reflect on what I've done in my life and what is left. And so, you know, this sermon is terribly convicting for me. So I find myself, um, I find myself wondering what happened to that what happened to that young 30-year-old person who was willing to take on risks and do insane things? Maybe you're in that place too. It starts with prayer. And if you're willing, an empty chair. <laughs>